This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 23, Ancient Greece, A Summary, Part 1. late Bronze Age collapse around the year 1200 BCE, Greek lands entered a Dark Age. A lot of uncertainty exists about this period and this is because there is a lack of contemporary written evidence about what was going on. We only really see the emergence of the Greek alphabet in around 800 BCE. The Peloponnese may have been settled by migrants from the north called Dorians. But also there were migrations away from the Balkan Peninsula onto the islands of the Aegean and the west coast of Anatolia, which is very often called Asia Minor. But it's the landmass of the modern country of Turkey. As these people diversified, they would settle in urbanised cities and develop individual societal identities. And these identities would be highlighted and celebrated from 776 BCE with the introduction of the Pan-Hellenic Olympic Games held in the Peloponnesian settlement of Olympia to be held every Olympiad which is a period of four years. The issue that we have with this information, though, is that the suggested start date of 776 BCE is only referred to retrospectively, and like so much of the information so early in ancient Greek history, we have to make our own decision about how we feel about the information that we are reading. The stories of Homer may have existed for some time before they were written down for the first time during the 8th century BCE. When we enter the 7th century BCE, we begin to feel more confident about the information that we know about, and this is thanks to historians such as Herodotus and Thucydides who penned so much information about Greek history up until the 5th century BCE. As the Greek city-states started expanding and colonising, they would start treading on each other's toes. We can see evidence of coinage, dating back to this period, which supports evidence of healthy trade networks. But with wealth comes competition, and we see clashes between different Greek city-states, both at sea and on land. City-states were under pressure to adapt and to be able to compete with each other. Corinth was one of the first powerful city-states and it was also one of the first city-states to be ruled by a tyrant, which in other words means somebody who overthrew the established monarchs 
such as the priest kings or the elected aristocrat. Periander is probably the most well-known of the Corinthian tyrants due to the success of his leadership making Corinth a significant polis of this era. Other polis of Greek lands reacted in different ways to the upsurge of competition for trade and wealth during the 7th century BCE. The Spartans decided to build a large area of influence by conquering their neighbours to the west, the Messenians, and in victory they would turn the Messenians into their helot slave class, therefore creating more resource by which to feed and arm their highly regarded military. Some polays would continue to colonise in order to gather more wealth, such as the Therans from the Cycladic Islands of the Aegean Sea, who would land on the North African coast and establish the city of Cyrene. We know that Greek peoples were travelling the length and breadth of the Mediterranean Sea, as the Phoenicians had done before them, and indeed still were. There is evidence of Greek presence in the mysterious Spanish settlement of Tartessus. Athens was trying to adapt to avoid the kind of tyrannical takeover that Corinth had experienced by making its own legal reforms. They would allow individuals to overhaul their law code in a bid to make it more inclusive of non-aristocratic classes, in a bid to appease them and prevent a coup d'etat. The most famous early law reformers of Athens were Draco and Solon. These reforms which took Athens into the 6th century BCE would turn out to be not enough to prevent a tyrannical uprising which put a man called Pisistratus in charge. But Pisistratus was quite a responsible ruler and the influence of Solon and his efforts to alter Athens into a more inclusive constitution was preserved as an improvement as Athens edged closer to democracy. There would naturally be opposition to Pisistratus' rule by those sceptics who would be concerned about the intentions of a ruler who was not elected, and also not least of all by the aristocracy who may have lost out on particular privileges. Pisistratus was run out of Athens as well, but ultimately he would regain his position as the tyrannical leader of the polis. There would be a small dynasty of Athenian tyrants related to Pisistratus during the 6th century BCE and we call them collectively the Pisistratids. During the 6th century BCE we can really see some of the first signs of academic brilliance within the Greek speaking world. We have mentioned something called the Seven Sages of Greece during this podcast and although not all sources agree who the Seven Sages are, we can suggest who they should be by looking closely at the most commonly named individuals from the most respectable sources. And we can probably understand 
that the earliest reference to the Seven Sages could likely refer to seven influential individuals from the earliest Greek societies. Periander of Corinth is possibly one of the seven sages of Greece, one of the seven men notable for their wisdom in early Greek-speaking lands. Solon of Athens, the lawgiver and reformist, is favoured by most sources as another of the seven sages. However, some of the wisest men of Greek-speaking lands were not statesmen, but just purely known for their philosophical, academic knowledge, and one such man was Thales of Miletus. Miletus is a city in Ionia, the Greek-speaking region of Asia Minor. What sets Thales apart as a man of particular note is the fact that he would look beyond the mythological standard, such as Homer's works on Olympian Greek gods and Trojan affairs, for a more scientific explanation for the fundamental nature of the universe. His mental agility was taken seriously by his ability to predict natural phenomena such as solar eclipses. Although Thales suggested that water is the basic element of the universe, something that may seem ridiculous now, it was the fact that he recognised the fact that basic elements of something make up all matter, that is certainly a scientific theory breakthrough. Students of Thales include Anaximander, who put forward a theory of human evolution from another creature, which may have been unthinkable compared to traditional mythological stories of gods and creation. Another student from this Ionian lineage may have been Pythagoras, whose name has been preserved in mathematics of the modern age by the Pythagoras Triangle Equation. Pythagoras has a much deeper place in the history of philosophy than just a simple geometric law. Being a strong influence on later philosophers and polymaths, and somebody who migrated to Magna Graecia, the land of the Greek-speaking colonies, on the Italian peninsula, and introduced a new level of academia there. Pythagoras is also noted for his deep-thinking theories of human souls being immortal and its reincarnation into a different body. Another Ionian Greek man called Heraclitus of Ephesus theorised that the universe existed in a constant state of flux or uncertainty, basically contrasting the theory that says everything stays the same. An important requirement for Greek colonists and seafaring merchants was for skilled cartographers or map makers and Miletus was well known for this during the 6th century BCE also. One of the more well known figures in this field was a man called Hecateus who was also one of the first known Greek historians. The reality was that the information that cartographers produced would have had a lot of value for those commanders of naval fleets that were engaging 
with rivals and we know that competition for resources leading to conflict was something that had been going on in the Mediterranean Sea during this period for very many decades. Certainly Greek peoples and Carthaginians whose ancestry is traced back to the Phoenicians of the Levant were fighting over lands as far west as Corsica. The demands of societies would put pressure on the academics to be able to come up with practical solutions to problems and we can see evidence of this brilliance at the island of Samos with the construction of the 6th century BCE tunnel by a name called Eupalinos. This was one of the earliest evidences of this type of hydraulic engineering with the tunnel leading through the limestone at the base of a hill in order to bring water to the people of the city. By the end of the 6th century BCE, the lands of Asia Minor had fallen under the overlordship of the Achaemenid Persians who had approached from the east. The Persians installed their own tyrant rulers and everything appeared to be relatively drama-free at the start. In the west, the city of Athens was growing more and more prosperous, only being rivalled in power by the Spartans who themselves had influence over much of the Peloponnese. The Pisistratid rulers were challenged by the Tyrannicides in 514 BCE, but they failed in their quest to eliminate the tyrants, a story we explored in episode 8. The eventual demise of the Pisistratids came when the out-of-favour Alcmeonid aristocratic family of Athens went to the king of Sparta for assistance in overthrowing the Pisistratids once and for all. This would result in Athens falling under the leadership of a man called Clisthenes, who would establish the most democratic setup known yet, carrying on from the work done by the most influential Athenian statesman from before the Pisistratid tyranny. Fifth century BCE. Some of the Ionians were fed up with the overlordship of the Persians and decided to stage a major revolt at the beginning of the 5th century BCE. Despite the Ionians receiving the backing of the powerful democratic polis of Athens, the Achaemenid Persians hit back hard, suppressing the rebels and making plans to punish the Athenians for their part in supporting the revolt. Initially the Persians under the rule of King Darius the Great would cross the Hellespont into what we recognise today as European lands and gained control of Thrace and Macedonia in turn. Darius would push on into the lands of the Balkan Peninsula destroying the Euboean city of Eritrea and landing at the Attica Peninsula home of the city of Athens at a location called Marathon. The Athenians under Miltiades would defeat the Persians and the Persians fled the Balkan Peninsula but the Athenians knew that they would be back so they set to work building a huge naval fleet exploiting the wealth 
of the silver mines of the Attica Peninsula to acquire as much timber as possible from places such as Macedonia. Indeed, the Persians returned under the rule of King Xerxes the Great, and despite even being supported by the traditional enemies the Spartans, the Athenians were unable to prevent the Persians from invading and destroying Athens, sending the Athenians into exile. The Athenians by this time were being led by a man called Themistocles, who would rally the allied Greeks and score a famous naval victory at Salamis. The allied Greeks would go on to score further victories against the Persians at Plataea and Mycale, and this caused the Achaemenid Persians to withdraw from mainland Greece, and the invasion was over. Despite Themistocles' heroic actions, he would eventually be ostracised from Athens in a demonstration of the fickle nature of Greek politics. Despite the assistance of the Spartans during the Persian invasion, there was never a true friendship between the Athenians and the Spartans, with there being real trust of each other's intentions. Likely manifested from a paranoia of each other's quests for wealth and power having a negative impact on their own economy. The Spartans had already created a Peloponnesian League of Poles, which was a confederation of Poles, with Sparta as the main party. The Athenians saw it as necessary to create its own league called the Delian League to keep a balance of power. The Delian League was initially established under the premise that it was a commonwealth of Poles, but it became clear that Athens had clear intentions of being the sole hegemon of the Delian League Poles. When the island of Naxos attempted to secede from the League, Athens actively prevented them from doing so. When the highly regarded statesman called Pericles rose to prominence in Athens, it sparked a golden age of Athenian history, with much in the way of cultural aspects coming to the fore and a strong and direct influence over the Delian League. When Sparta was rocked by a massive earthquake in the 460s BCE, the helots of Sparta revolted and Athens became embroiled in this affair. The outcome was that Athens gained more power and influence by defeating Peloponnesian cities in battle and obliging the island of Aegina to join the Delian League. Pericles moved the treasury of the Delian League from the island of Delos to Athens itself and Sparta had to accept the terms of a truce. Athens was at its peak under Pericles. The Persians decided to concentrate on other affairs bringing about an official peace between the Greeks and the Persians called the Peace of Callias. The Athenian navy was by far the greatest navy on the seas and it represented the Athenian lifeline. 
It famously defeated the Persians at Salamis some 30 years earlier and was unchallengeable. For that reason it was important that the city of Athens had good connections to the naval fleet and so the port town of Piraeus was rebuilt thanks to the architectural planning of a man called Hippodamus of Miletus. Huge walls were built around Athens and Piraeus with the thoroughfare connecting the two settlements also surrounded by the Long Wall meaning that the city of Athens now had an impenetrable link to its navy. Over the course of the 440s and 430s BCE a new Parthenon was built which was a temple to the goddess Athena built on the Acropolis of Athens. Theatre was as strong as ever with the great Dionysia, celebrating the greatest playwrights in the aftermath of the lifetime of Aeschylus, whose work was celebrated in Athens at the beginning of the 5th century BCE. Athens, under the direction of Pericles, was prosperous and the Spartans were pushed into the background. The Spartans could not allow the Athenians to be so dominant over Greek-speaking lands of Poles, and they were looking for any excuse to bring them down a peg or two. Political arguments between Corcyra and Corinth and Plataea and Thebes allowed Athens and Sparta to use these arguments to raise tensions with each other by siding with one side or the other. This was something inevitable, but in this modern and complex political landscape needed to be seen as justified. So Sparta invaded Athens, and the Athenians would retreat within the safety of their new city walls, safe in the knowledge that they had a protected thoroughfare giving them access to their unchallengeable naval fleet who could keep the city supplied. However, a plague broke out within these walls and killed thousands of Athenians, one of which was Pericles, their highly influential and effective leader. This event seemingly symbolised a shift in the balance of power and things would never quite be the same again. Sparta was able to put themselves into a position of dominance, gaining the surrender of Plataea, Athens's trusted ally, and then suing for the peace of Nicias after a brief truce. However, it would not be long before hostilities started again as both Sparta and Athens were absolutely desperate to not allow the other to be the dominant power. Sparta was victorious at the Battle of Mantinea in 418 BCE and Athens would lose another valuable ally in Argos. So it would come down to a man called Alcibiades to make a decision to secure the resources of Sicily for the benefit of the Athenian cause. The Greeks of Sicily had had their own problems to deal with throughout the 5th century BCE 
repelling attacks from the Carthaginians who had control of the west of the island. And so Greek Sicily stayed out of Balkan affairs. Greek Sicily had become quite important and powerful in its own right, however, with a strong academic reputation with individuals such as Empedocles advancing the philosophies of the Ionians and their fundamental view of the universe. However, the lands of Sicily were also quite resource-rich, and it was this that made it attractive to the Athenians. Before the Athenian fleet set off for Sicily, Alcibiades was accused of trying to jinx the expedition, and after fleeing for his life, he defected to the Spartan side, and the Athenians suffered a crushing defeat at Syracuse, with most of their army captured. The Syracusans would then return to defending their city from the Carthaginians once again, and the Sicilian expedition was over. Athens was in turmoil now, and an oligarchic revolution took place, setting up the Council of the Four Hundred, but this also didn't last. The last thing that Athens had to rely on was its superior naval fleet, but even this suffered defeat at Egospotomy, and Athens was now at the mercy of the Spartans. The Spartans pulled down the long wall and installed a pro-Spartan council to rule the city, but ultimately the Athenian democracy returned, even if Athens was now a shadow of its former self and no longer a match for Sparta. Fourth century BCE While all this warfare was taking place, the academic brilliance of Greek cultures still managed to prosper. Even though the celebrated philosopher Socrates was executed for being too outspoken and too opinionated against the Athenian establishment, his student Plato took a much more tactful approach by avoiding voicing his opinions in public and putting his energy into founding an educational establishment in Athens called the Academy. Despite the Thracian philosopher called Democritus of Abdera theorising something that more closely resembled modern atomic theory, much more closely than the fundamental matter theories before him, Plato did not seem to favour those teachings. Plato's theories of the universe follow a theory that nothing in the world was in a perfect form. Now, let's be honest, this means nothing to us who listen to this podcast for a general story of history, but it does demonstrate a very deep form of thinking and philosophy that existed back in 4th century BCE Greek-speaking lands. However, it may have been the promotion and encouragement of deep and abstract thought that enabled people working in other fields the freedom to explore their own area of expertise with a very open mind. Hippocrates is considered to be an early authority on disease and medicine, founding a school of medicine which revolutionised 
the field of medicinal study. He recognised and taught that not keeping your body in a good state of balance would encourage disease. One of Plato's students was a man called Eudoxus of the Carrion city of Cnidos on the coast of Anatolia. He philosophised about the earth being at the centre of the universe and this explained the movement of celestial objects of the sky. Eudoxus would put forward a theory of celestial spheres surrounding the earth and this would be further advanced by his pupil Callippus and Callippus's contemporary Aristotle. Another alumni of the Platonic Academy called Heraclides Ponticus proposed a theory of the earth spinning on its axis explaining the movement of the stars in the night sky. All of these men with their wonderful theories emanated from the Platonic Academy with its founder Plato being a student and follower of the executed Socrates. However, another student of Socrates was a man called Xenophon. Xenophon was a historian, but he is better known as the man who led 10,000 Greek mercenaries across Achaemenid Persia in a failed bid to topple the Achaemenid ruler at the time, Artaxerxes II. Elsewhere, conflict continued between the Syracusans and the Carthaginians on the island of Sicily. The Syracusans were under the rule of a tyrant called Dionysius the Elder, who was labelled as a cruel-hearted man. But under Dionysius, Syracuse would become the envy of all the Greek colonies to the west with its dominance and cultural significance. So despite being regarded as an evil despot, Dionysius the Elder is still regarded as an effective leader. When he died, rule of Syracuse passed to his son Dionysius the Younger. The son was not a natural leader and struggled to maintain control of his throne, being a very unpopular ruler. He was ultimately displaced by a Corinthian called Timolean and forced to leave Syracuse for good. Meanwhile, the Spartan dominance over in the Balkan Peninsula Poles was becoming a concern for the other major Poles and also for the Achaemenid Persians under their king Artaxerxes II. This led to the Corinthian War which pitted everyone against Sparta. Sparta was put back in its place and the Achaemenid Persians made the Spartans sign the King's Peace in 386 BCE, restoring Ionian lands to the control of the Persians. The pro-Spartan ruling party of the polis of Thebes was overthrown by a Theban called Epaminondas. The Spartans were forced to abandon Thebes and Thebes grew in power. Sparta was now on the defensive and even tried to make peace with Athens. 
This was to no avail though, as Epaminondas pushed home Theban dominance by defeating Sparta at the Battle of Leuctra, ending Sparta's dominance and greatness. Sparta's grip over its local enemies slipped away as the Arcadians broke their alliance and even the Mycenaean Henots were able to break away from Spartan rule with the help of Epaminondas. The Thebans met the Spartans once again in 362 BCE at the Battle of Mantinea and although the Thebans were victorious they lost their great leader Epaminondas in battle. The Spartans did assist the Egyptians to rebel against the Achaemenid Persians by attacking cities based in Phoenicia, but that didn't amount to anything and Spartan power was gone. The Thebans were never the same again either. One of their political prisoners was Prince Philip of Macedon and by 359 BCE Philip had returned to Macedon and become the king ruling as King Philip II. In the south of the Greek lands, the Amphictyonic League, headed by the Thebans, imposed a fine on the Phocians, who seized the sacred temple of Apollo at Delphi in response. They would use the temple's treasury to wage a sacred war against its rivals, and this would ultimately debilitate all of the Greek polis, while Philip of Macedon bided his time and waited to take advantage of the situation. While the polis were bickering with each other, Philip would gather new lands into his growing empire, initially by taking small areas of land such as the Chalcadiki Peninsula and then moving on to more significant entities such as the vast area of Thrace but not before organising a peace between Macedon and Athens. However, after the Sacred War, the Greek polis recognised that Macedon was becoming too powerful and a coalition formed to take Philip and his Macedonians on. The main city-states behind the coalition were Athens and Thebes and they would meet the Macedonians at the Battle of Chironea. Philip and the Macedonians were successful in this battle and this would secure Macedon's position as the new dominant Greek entity. It would not be long after this that Philip II would reveal greater ambitions to liberate the Ionians from their Achaemenid Persian overlords in Asia Minor. However, Philip would not live to achieve this ambition due to the fact that he was murdered in 336 BCE and he would be succeeded by his son, Alexander. Alexander had been groomed for greatness, being tutored as a child by the great polymath, Aristotle, who himself was a student of Plato and himself went on to open the Lycaeum or Lyceum educational establishment in the city of Athens. Another man, a philosopher from Cyprus called Zeno, would open a Stoic school of philosophy in Athens shortly afterwards. 
So despite Athens not being a dominant Greek power, the city itself would still be a highly influential place of great culture and significance. It's all too much to fit into one episode, the summary of ancient Greece, but it should fit nicely into two, as next week we discover what Alexander the Great did next, and we take a closer look from a different angle at the Hellenistic period, uh, which is something that we spoke about last week, uh, but uh, we should be able to learn a lot more about next week, so uh, looking forward to that one. Part 2 of the Ancient Greece Summary So after Greece, our next topic of discussion will be the Romans and um, I think we're going to have probably at least 20 episodes on the Romans so some of you have been really looking forward to that period of the History of the World podcast and we're going to really be taking a good solid look at the Romans and, and all those many centuries of Roman history and also uh, how it ties into all of the stories that we've already told about other cultures such as the Phoenicians, the ancient Greeks, the Egyptians and uh, certainly the Parthians as well. So we're going to be hearing a lot more about that and uh, we're going to be hearing a little bit more about the Celts of course and uh, all those many, many different uh, societies that Rome touched uh, that we haven't even mentioned in the whole History of the World podcast um, already. Um, so we're going to be uh, looking deeper into European history. Uh, but before that, of course, we're going to be taking a small break from the weekly broadcast, from the chronological weekly broadcasts. And the reason for that is because uh, some of our listeners have been extremely kind over the course of the History of the World podcast's uh, tenure, over its almost two-year-long tenure, and uh, some of you have made significant donations to the podcast. And as such, um, one of the rewards is that certain individuals are entitled to commission special episodes so I thought now would be the good time to do that so next week we're going to finish up the ancient Greece summary and then we're going to move into some special episodes so we're going to jump right out of this period of history and into another period of history that has been nominated by members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that but not until next week. Now then, I'm going to wrap up this week. Um, I've had an extremely busy week and I've fallen miles behind on my correspondence to members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and also to those of you who have messaged in. So I'll try and catch up with you all. Uh, over the course of the next seven days and then read some of your correspondence out on next week's podcast. But remember, if you do want to support the History of the World podcast or you do want to uh, you do want to qualify for some of the rewards that the History of the World podcast gives to its listeners, gives to its uh, donators, its patrons, then by all means please go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website 
and go to the Patreon link. And uh, once you sign up to make a monthly donation, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You will be welcomed with open arms into the good Illuminati of the History of the World podcast. So, until next week, thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and we'll continue this story next week in the final Ancient Greece podcast of this volume. So until next week, cheerio and please be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us